Good morning. Uh, welcome again to By Grace Community Church. Uh, it is good to be with you all here on this Christmas Eve morning. Uh, worship together our uh, God and Savior, Jesus, who came. Uh, it is great uh, this morning. Uh, my name is Matt Hausman. By the way, for those of you who I don't know, I'm one of the elders here at By Grace. Uh, Pastor Kevin, uh, we talked about it a few months ago and got the morning off. Uh, and so it's my pleasure to open the word with you all this morning. Uh, we are going to be looking at, uh, taking a quick break from Galatians, we're going to look at Matthew chapter 2, uh, verses 1 through 12. Uh, as you open up your Bibles, this is a familiar story for many of us, the wise men coming to see the baby Jesus. Uh, so we're going to start here in verse 1. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose before them went until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, it is amazing to us that you came. You came as a little baby. You came uh, there in Bethlehem. As we open and study the word this morning, Lord, we pray that your spirit would be on us, uh, that we would hear and understand and learn and love you more. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So before we uh, get to the text, this morning we're going to have two topics. Uh, We're going to talk about waiting, and we're going to talk about gifts. And I know it's the day before Christmas, and everybody's super excited about gifts, and I can be slightly punny, and everybody's got to wait for them because it's tomorrow. Um, but what do you think of when you hear the word waiting? Perhaps you've uh, had the experience, the joy of taking a car to a dealership and sitting there in their waiting room for a long period of time while they fix a car. I see many, <laughs> many heads nodding. Or perhaps a waiting room, right, in a hospital or a doctor's office waiting for your turn. Uh, I spent time in the military. Uh, and so we had a phrase there, and all the military people will hear it, hurry up and wait, which is the idea that you've got to get up and get ready and be there early so somebody more important doesn't have to wait on you. Uh, but today, right now, my favorite waiting story actually just happened about three months ago. Uh, in October, my daughter Susanna turned seven, and for her seventh birthday, she really wanted to have a daddy-daughter day. And she had a whole list of things that we needed to go do, and one of them was going fishing. So you can imagine how it goes, taking a seven-year-old fishing. 
but we couldn't just fish from a pond or the bank on the pond or a dock. We had to be on a boat to fish. So we go and rent a boat, uh, get all the oars and life jackets, and of course she's seven, so she can carry a fishing pole, and I get to carry everything else. We finally get the boat launched. We get out on the water. Um, by the way, this is a fishing story. The winds were at least 15 miles an hour. I'm sure they'll grow next time I tell it. Uh, and we're out there, and I get her, get her pole set, get her line in the water. She says, okay, now what do I do? Well, well, you wait for the fish to bite. And she looks, and she waits a really long time, and, you know, I'm busy doing something else. Really long time being like 15 seconds. She says, waiting is hard. And that, that story sticks with me, because waiting is hard. There's a lot in our lives, in her life, Waiting is hard for a fish to bite on a bobber. By the way, we didn't catch anything that day. Um, I'll take her again sometime. Um, but the longer I've been alive, the more I realize that waiting can be really, really hard. And so there's a lot of waiting in this passage today. Let's turn to the text and get started with it. Uh, verses 1 and 2. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judah, or Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. And so as we talk and open up this passage, we're introduced to the wise men. And I know when I come to this text, I, wanna, I have a lot of questions that I want to get answered, right? Where, where exactly did the wise men come from? How long did it take him to get there? How old was Jesus at this time? But we have to realize that Matthew, as he writes this text for us, doesn't answer any of those questions. And so there's not actually a lot that we know about the story, and that tells us, actually, that's not the main point of the story. We're not supposed to know those things. Here's what we do know. We do know that the word for wise men is magios, uh, and that is a plural Greek word. So we know there's more than one. Um, I also, my personal uh, perspective on this, that this is not just two or three or four wise men carrying gifts, uh, that this is an entourage of sorts. This is a group of people, maybe with a you know, half dozen servants, and they're traveling around with gold and frankincense and myrrh. Those are very valuable things. I, I would expect to see guards. And so when it says they came into Jerusalem, they came looking for the king in Jerusalem, they would have been very conspicuous among the people of Israel, among the town, the city of Jerusalem. Uh, this is, you know, maybe they all had matching outfits, uh, riding on camels or donkeys or whatever it was they used to travel. And so the wise men show up. And then Herod hears about it. Uh, so starting in verse 3, And Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. And now Herod is, uh, we know very little about the wise men, but as we talk about Herod, we actually know a little bit about Herod because he had contemporary historians that wrote about him, and those manuscripts are still available for us today. Uh, so we know that he had been declared king of the Jews by the Roman Senate. He had to conquer Jerusalem and Israel by military force. He brought an army in and conquered the land. 
Uh, And at this point in time, he'd been ruling there in Israel for about 30 years when Jesus was born. We know that he has Jewish ancestry, which is maybe part of the reason Rome was hoping that he would be accepted, but he also put heavy taxes on the people, and uh, Israel didn't really like Herod as its king. Um, He tried to uh, curry favor with them by undertaking massive building projects, and one of those was the temple. So the temple that Jesus was dedicated at, uh, the temple uh, that the disciples looked up and gazed at the craftsmanship of, was built during the reign, or much of that work was ongoing during the reign of Herod, uh, even to the point where the Western Wall in Israel or in Jerusalem, still there today, was part of the workmanship that was done in Herod's reign. The other thing we know about Herod is that he was very jealous of his position and his power. Uh, He was very quick and very ruthless when it came to threats to his throne, uh, even to his sons. And so he had multiple sons or opponents killed off over the years. Uh, And so as he hears about this new king of the Jews, born king of the Jews, being uh, somewhere around, he is not happy with that state of affairs. And so picking up, continuing in verse 3, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of the he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So he comes and asks the leaders of Israel, that's who the chief priests and the scribes are, they are the religious leaders, they really uh, control a lot of what happens in that nation, uh, and he asks them, hey, where's this, where's this king supposed to be born? Or where's the Christ supposed to be born? And they give him the right answer, right? They uh, come out, this is actually a quote out of Micah chapter 5. Uh, and they tell him, hey, it's going to be in Bethlehem. But we start with waiting. And when we talk about the chief priest and the scribes, they are the leaders of Israel and they have been waiting for a very long time for this Christ to come. We can go all the way back to Genesis, Genesis chapter 3, and see the promise of a Savior who would one day crush the serpent. You can see the promises to Abraham, to Moses, to David, through many years. Excuse me. Um, They have been waiting Long. We can't fathom how long Israel has been waiting for this Messiah. Ken said something in men's study a few weeks ago. He said that waiting is hard because we measure it in our own lives. Really stick with, stuck with me. And so what have the chief priests and scribes been doing in this time that they've been waiting Well, we have to remember the last prophet, Malachi, spoke to the people 400 years before. They haven't heard from God in 400 years. In that time, they've been conquered by Greece. They've been conquered again by Rome. Uh, And I get the sense that they've really stopped waiting with faith for God. 
I think we can see this well as we uh, look at Jesus' critiques of the leaders of Israel. So we're going to look at that for just a minute. Uh, Matthew chapter 6, 1 through 6. This is part of the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do, in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you that they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father, who sees in secret, will reward you. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received the reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And we get the sense as we read those texts, he's talking about the leaders of Israel, and they are interested in being seen, being religious. That's their goal, to be seen, being religious. But that's not the only place we can see it. We can go to Luke chapter 20, verse 45. Jesus says, In the hearing of all the people, he said to his disciples, Beware the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues and the place of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses for a pretense and make long prayers. They will receive a greater condemnation. Thank you. Again, they're interested in being seen. They're interested uh, in the applaud and approval of men. We'll look at one more. John chapter 11, 47 and 48. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. The leadership of Israel is more interested in maintaining their position, maintaining their influence, maintaining their power than they are seeing God at work. But these are the leaders of Israel. These are the people who studied God's law as their job. They were known for how well they kept the law. They were known for how much they knew about the law. They knew the Messiah would come. They knew even where the Messiah would come. One of the things I looked at as I was preparing for this sermon was just geography. And it amazed me how small Israel is. If we're here in this church, and this was Bethlehem, the temple in Jerusalem is about as far away, same direction, as Yorktown Beach. That's it. Just Yorktown Beach. Now, of course, we have highways and we have cars, so it's 20 minutes for us. They would have been on foot, so it's a half day. But still, it's only a half day from Jerusalem to the place where where Jesus was born. And as we look at this story and we look at the overall 
um, aspect of the story. None of the chief priests or leaders are interested in taking the half-day walk to go see Bethlehem and go see this baby that was born king. I think we, we get the sense that they didn't think that God could do his work. God couldn't, certainly couldn't bring his, his Messiah into the world in the face of the might of the Roman Empire. It was too strong. It was too tough. Israel was weak. All that they could do was try to hold on to their identity in the face of the challenge before them. But if we stop and think, we have to say our hearts aren't really that different than the ones of the chief priests and the scribes back in those days. We have challenges in front of us. We've been waiting for things for very long times in some cases, whether health concerns, uh, whether just someone we love who's walked away from the faith or has never come to faith. And we've been waiting for such a long time to see that happen. Or we just see the pain and the suffering and difficulty of life. And it's easy for us to forget that God is in charge of all of those things. It's easy for us to just survive amidst the trial and instead of bringing it to our Lord. Philippians 4, uh, 6 and 7. Let me just jump to it real quick. Wrong one. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, make your request. Let your request be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Everything. God wants us to come to him with everything. Whatever it is, whatever trial we have, whatever difficulty we are facing. Now, I wish I could be up here and say, yeah, God's going to work it out exactly the way we want him to. We know that that's not true. But we do know that God is good. And we know that God has power over every circumstance, over every challenge, every decision to be made, and every heart of every individual that is in any of our lives. We must trust him in his ways. And we must wait with faith. You see, it's not just Israel that is in waiting. The New Testament, as we look across it, and I've just got two, but we go seven or eight different places where the New Testament describes us as a church in waiting, waiting for the return of our Lord and Savior. Titus 2, 11 through 13. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. That is who we are. We are waiting for our Lord and Savior. We are being trained to renounce ungodliness, to renounce worldly passions. We long to live self-controlled and upright lives. That is who we are as a church. One more, Hebrews 9, 27 and 28. 
And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sins, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Are we eagerly waiting for Christ? We should be. But are we really eagerly waiting for him on a random Thursday evening? But there is someone in our story who was eagerly waiting for him. Picking up from our text in verse 7, Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother and fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed their country by another way. The wise men were eagerly waiting for Jesus. We can go all the way back to verse 2 in this text. They come into Jerusalem saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For he, for we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. They traveled, however far they traveled, we would assume it's been at least months, with one singular goal to come and worship Jesus. And here, uh, they, so they get the, the message from Herod. They go, they find the house. And did you catch it? In verse 10, when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Not at seeing Jesus. No at just realizing that their journey was at an end, that they had come to the place that they had longed for for so long. It is one of the ways, uh, I think, uh, if I can describe this feeling for us, have you ever been the person or either on either side, you're coming back from a long trip or you're waiting for someone to come back from a long trip and you're there at the airport you used to be able to be there right where they would offboard the plane, but that's no longer the case. But you're standing there waiting for someone you have not seen for months. A loved one, a parent, best friend. And you see them and your heart leaps at the person that you've longed to see. And they're there before you. And that is the wise men in this moment. They have longed, and they go, and they open the door, and they see the child there with his mother, and they worship him. I know everybody likes to jump quickly to the gifts, because the gifts are fun to talk about. Who doesn't like to talk about gifts? But it's really, I, I really appreciate that Matthew captured the worship of Jesus in this moment. We would say, hey, you know, the worship of Jesus, that, we do that every week, right? Why is that special? They actually do it every day. We do it every minute. We worship Jesus. But in the Gospel of Matthew, 
and really in the New Testament overall, there are only a handful of places where Jesus is described as being worshipped. Matthew has three. The first is here. The second is when he walks on water. Peter walks out and joins him. Then the third is after his resurrection. So the first time that Jesus is recorded as worshipped in Scripture, it is done by people who are not of Israel. These are Gentiles. These are Gentiles that have no knowledge of the history of Israel. They just know a king was born, and he, was, he deserved to be worshipped. And so they came and did so. And so there's a reality that we do join every day as we worship. We join in worshiping the same Jesus. He certainly was worthy of the worship. When we talk about age, the only thing we know about the timeline, I'll just note, is that the term here for child is just young child, which could be anything from a few weeks old to a few months old to a year old. Um, it's very unhelpful as far as when this took place. <laughs> so we come to the gifts. And so uh, there's a, a lot of things have been written about the gifts. There's a sense that we need to take these, I think, very practically. So as we talk about the gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh, uh, there's a reality that these are treasures of a kingdom. These are the key produce that a kingdom might produce. It's the type of gift that one king might send to another king to curry favor with him as a sort of tribute of sorts. And so we can look at these and we can see that definitely uh, there is a earthly common aspect to it because we have to assume, or at least I'm assuming, that the wise men don't know the Old Testament. But if we go to the Old Testament, there's a ton of symbolism and significance of these as well. Uh, the one that I'm going to highlight specifically is the tie into the tabernacle. Um, so gold, if we think about the tabernacle, there was gold all over the interior of the tabernacle. The lapstand was gold. The, I think the plate that held the bread before the Lord was gold. So gold is all throughout the tabernacle. Frankincense was a key ingredient of the incense that was burned before Yahweh every day, all the time. And myrrh, myrrh was a key ingredient in the anointing oil that was used to dedicate the tabernacle, the priests, all of the tabernacle, uh, the priest, everything inside the tabernacle, uh, the garments of the priest and the priests themselves were all anointed with this oil that was, had as its foundation myrrh. And so there's a huge tie-in here. We can also look at these and we can see them uh, as pointing to gold, as pointing to his kingship. Uh, we can see the frankincense is a relating to deity and myrrh pointing to his death because it was also used in burials. ton of significance. Uh, Isaiah 60, verse 6 says, A multitude of camels shall cover you, the young camels of Midian and Ephah, though all those from Sheba shall come, they shall bring gold and frankincense, and shall bring good news, the praises of the Lord. So all the way back in Isaiah, there are specific call-outs to these gifts coming. Uh, and Sheba is actually one of the places. It's in southeastern Arabian Peninsula, 
uh, in northeastern Africa. It's one of the places the wise men could have come from. And so we have these great gifts. But the reality is, is that Jesus was also the gift. Jesus was the gift to Israel, and they didn't know he had come. He was the gift to the wise men, assuming they had faith in him. And he was the gift even to us here today. But not only is he the gift, uh, he is also the giver of gifts. He gave the Holy Spirit, uh, Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, in him. You also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who's the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Jesus came as a gift. He shed his blood on the cross after living a perfect life to secure redemption, and he offers that freely as a gift. And he sends his Holy Spirit that is with us, and each day we walk united with Christ. We said that waiting is hard, and we all agree waiting is hard, and it would be easy for us to wait, as the chief priests and the scribes did, without faith. But there's a key difference. We wait united to Christ. We wait with faith. But there's one more gift that we need to talk about here, and that is the waiting. As hard as it is, the wait is a gift. Every day, we have the opportunity to walk out another day, another hour, another minute, worshiping our Lord and our Savior, who is worthy of everything we could give to him. Not just here on Sunday mornings, but the random Thursday evenings as well. We get to use the gift of the Holy Spirit to bring him glory, to bring him honor, and to bring pleasure to our God Most High. It was interesting as I was preparing how often the word pleasure was used as God looked upon the gifts of his people. We bring God pleasure. And so how do we wait? We wait with hope. We would with hope knowing that our future is secure, that our, that our Savior Christ will one day return. We wait with humility knowing that there's nothing that we could do to earn his favor. There's nothing we can do to warrant the gift that we've been given. We wait with gratitude knowing that it can't be taken away from us, knowing that we are secure. And we wait with hearts that long to share the gifts that we've been given. Peter, in his uh, letter, his second letter, uh, has this phrase here. He says, Second um, Peter 3, 8, 9, but not, Do not overlook the fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, that we should all reach repentance. It has been a long time we've been waiting for our Lord, but he is not slow. 
and we long for the day that he returns. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you uh, for him coming, for the hope that we have in him and through him. Lord, we thank you that the Holy Spirit is in us and that we have been united by faith to Christ. And we pray, Lord, uh, that we would, as we walk out each and every day, bring you pleasure, bring you glory, and bring you honor. For it is our greatest hope that we will be with you. We long for you to return. Come quickly, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.